Brian Ministries International presents Todd Talks, featuring Todd Edwards. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, Candice. Uh, many times when, when we come together, um, I, I am not sure where we're going to go. I, I really feel uh, that I don't have a lot to, and I know this might sound funny, but it's, I really do believe this. I'm not sure what I have to give. And that happens almost, almost all the time. Not today. Today, I'm, a, I'm actually over, overly excited about what this, what's in the scriptures uh, on this. And part of our journey, is, you guys have been on a journey through Isaiah. I've been on a journey. We've been on a journey together. And the revelation that has come forth, I have also been learning on the fly. I've been learning in the study, but I've also been learning as we're gathered in the study. A lot of times, uh, revelation is coming forth for the first time in your ears and my ears at the same time. And this is one of those days where I can see it all of these layers are going to have to weave together somehow because the picture today is incredible and I'm real excited about it. Uh, opening up, um, have a couple thoughts I'd like to share before we go into this section of Isaiah. And thinking about last time in the beginning of Isaiah 65, there was a lot of hard language, and that's because Isaiah is now taking us through a series of choices, and the first choice is, do you want freedom or do you want to stay in bondage? And we had to struggle through that in Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 7, roughly. Now we're going to get through, once the earth experiences freedom and is really Jacob. Let's use Jacob. Jacob gets delivered out of Egypt. Now Jacob gets to decide, do they want to be circumcised of heart or not and become Israel? And that's what we're going to get into today. So last time it was, we took an angle of what it's like when people are struggling with bondage. Today, we're going to emphasize what it's like from the Israel standpoint of that choice and the circumcised choice. So I think we're going to stir up a lot of hope today. That's really my plan, um, is I, I hope we get into that place of absolute hope. So as we're going through Isaiah, not only my desire for, for everyone is to, to understand more of Isaiah and obviously understand, activate Zion, but also to to share with you kind of how I study and how I'm going through this so that you can go off on your own journey and you can go in and delve into deeper things and get revelation. Because part of what, what we do here on Saturday mornings is there's a lot of revelation and nuggets and I don't go deep into any one in particular. I may drop it and leave it. And then it's up to you guys to go and pick out the pieces that Holy Spirit speaking to you about and have that Selah into your heart. 
And, and that stone that gets tossed from upon high to crush the kingdom of Babylon, as seen in the statue, is Zion. And that is the government of God that expands then on the earth. This is what we've been talking about. And this is why I believe we're living in a time that we are delivering a mortal blow to the kingdom of darkness. It will recover. And that's why it says that the beast recovered from a mortal wound. But I think we're in the process of throwing that more that uh, delivering that mortal blow and establishing Zion onto the earth in the last days. That's why we had to activate the spirit of Elijah. So that Elijah prepares the way for the return of Yeshua as the king and prepares all the priests. That's why we're getting prepared for the second exodus. That's why we're getting prepared for the latter day reign. All of this is happening right before our eyes. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing time. So a couple of thoughts uh, to, to start off with uh, before we go further into Isaiah. Uh, since I mentioned the spirit of Elijah. God was speaking to me about this this week of where the remnant is. Where's the remnant? And I don't mean just one person or two person. I mean, kind of as a, as a whole. And what, what's the state of the, the, the remnant? The spirit of Elijah has always been going on, but it truly was activated for these last days, uh, last fall. And if we think about the spirit of Elijah and how this played out in scripture, Elijah himself, and you've heard me say this over and over again, one of the greatest days ever of a prophet calls down uh, fire to consume the sacrifice, slays the priests of Baal, um, ends the, the three and a half year drought, outruns the chariot as an old man. But at the end of it, he's afraid of Jezebel and he hides in a cave. And he's kind of worn out. Now we have the next person acting in the spirit of Elijah, which is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, greatest person ever born of a woman, according to Yeshua. And yet he goes through a period at the very end where he has doubts. Kind of like Elijah. He had, he had doubts. In fact, we can read this in uh, Matthew chapter 11. Turn, turn there, please. Because this is all going to tie together, I think, and weave a really great but long story today. Matthew 11, chapter, uh, chap chapter 11, verse 1. <clears throat> and it came to pass when Yeshua had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John the Baptist had heard in prison the works of Messiah, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you he that should come, or do we look for another? Now, there's a lot of takes on, on what John's mindset was at this time. But think about Elijah. Elijah goes through this great time of, of, uh, of being a prophet, and then at the end, he has doubts. He's not quite sure if he ran the race properly. 
John the Baptist is experiencing the same thing. He had an incredible ministry of preparing priests for the coming of Yeshua. He baptized Yeshua. He hears the voice of the Father. He sees the Holy Spirit descend upon him. He understands that he must decrease and Yeshua increase. And now he's in prison and he knows that the end of his life is near. And he's questioning, did I really get it? I, I, I know what my call was. Did I really execute my assignment? And he's got some doubts. So in verse four, and Yeshua answered. So are so we supposed to look for another? And Yeshua answers and says, go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. He's basically talking about Isaiah 61. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who shall ever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, Yeshua began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. So now he's going to validate John. Because John's showing a little bit of, little bit of doubt what's going on. This part of the spirit of Elijah. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken in the wind. So you have this reed that's making a lot of noise in the wind. So it's very noisy. Did you go out to see some noise, some interesting things going out in the wilderness? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Did you go out to see someone who is so supposed to be eloquently spoken and well-dressed? Verse 9, but who did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, and I say to you more than a prophet. That's what a lot of the world is looking for. The world, the Christian body is looking for right now. They need a voice. They need to hear from God, almost like a horoscope. Give me a word. Give me a word. Give me a word. I am so concerned about what's happening today. What's happening today? What's happening tomorrow? What's Are you going to seek a prophet all the time? Verse 10, but this is he of whom it has been written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare the way before you. Yes, I say unto you, amongst them that were born of a woman, there has not risen up a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now listen to this in verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven, in the King James it says, suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. For if you will receive it, this is Elijah, for whom it has come. So I'm going to talk about this a little bit, because this is where I, I think the state of the body of Christ, the true remnant is right now. Just like Elijah wavered at the end. Didn't finish the job, so Elisha had to be appointed in his place. John the Baptist wavered at the end. And praise God, Yeshua strengthened him to get through. Now we have this spirit of Elijah. And I think the spirit of Elijah needs to be encouraged again to finish the job. Don't back out now. 
And we can see this in Matthew eleven twelve. So the King James talks about suffering violence and the violent take it by force. It's really a bad translation. <laughs> so often that happens. So that term suffers violence is the Greek uh, Strong's 971, Biazzo. And it really means crowd oneself, press like in a siege. So if you picture you're trying to get in through this, this, like this medieval castle and there's this door and the door is, is, is closed off and you have this army coming against the door. The army is really big, but it starts to focus and concentrate on the door and there's this pressing to get in. Everybody's crowded and it's pressing itself. That's what this word is saying. There is a pressing to try to break through, try to get in. The word actually is crowd oneself, press, like is in a siege. And then the, the take it by force is like being plucked up. And that word plucked up in, in, in the New Testament is often used like, and Paul was plucked up and taken into heaven. John was in the spirit and plucked up. So it doesn't have to do with like violence or take it by force. It's really a bad translation. So this is what's happening. Up until John the Baptist, all the prophets and the people of faith were trying to press into the kingdom of heaven, like trying to siege in. But the doors were closed. And those that got in were like lifted up. They plucked it out, kind of like Ezekiel, plucked up by the hair to get into the kingdom of heaven. But John the Baptist is preparing the way to open the door. That's why all the prophets are coming to this point and looking to the point of John the Baptist preparing the way for Yeshua to open the door. That's really the right translation. So we're in a period of time right now where the spirit of Elijah has been released. We're preparing the way for Yeshua's return. And in order to prepare the way for Yeshua's return, we have to prepare the way for the bride to get mature and be ready as the bride. Now's not the time to give up. Zion is pressing at the door, the gate, unto the earth and it's about to burst now is not the time to give up the hard work has been done we have to get strong and press through the battle has been won in the heaven i'm convinced of this the second heaven the battle is won what we're feeling on the earth is this compression of Zion trying to break through the gates of the earth. The victory is now, it's been declared in the third heaven. It's been won in the second heaven. There's this compression taking place in the earth where everybody now is feeling something. They don't know what it is. It's because the gates of hell will not prevail and they're about to burst and Zion's about to burst onto the earth. That's what's happening right now. So don't be weary in well-doing, press on, 
Do not give up like Elisha did. Do I understand we have doubts like John the Baptist had in prison, but do not give up. Be strong all the way until the end. Exactly, Shannon. It is the last stage of labor. It's the worst. But the victory is already done. So press on. Um, second initial thought for the day. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I'm going to read just verse 14. This is a Selah. Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahuwah, my strength and my redeemer. I want to walk through this a little bit. This is something I want you to yet yeah, and receive. The meditation of my heart is acceptable. Now, if you think about that, I thought, because this is true in Scripture, that our hearts were deceitfully wicked. So how can our heart's meditation be an acceptable sacrifice before the living God? There is none righteous, no, not one. And it comes from the place of the heart. So how can this be? If we think about our, our three-part being, our spirit, soul, and body, you have the body that was made from the earth. You have the spirit that was made from the essence of God and from the heavens. The two come together and it forms the living soul. And we know this from Genesis. Well, if our body has been sown into corruption since the time of Adam and Eve, the body has an inherent sin. So therefore, when this inherent sin comes together with our spirit, there is an inherent issue in our hearts that comes from the body. Makes sense. That's where the heart is deceitfully wicked because it's sown in part from the flesh. And we know the flesh is full of sin because the, the death rate is one per person. We're still going to die because of the flesh. So here's the journey of a believer. And a mature believer, we start off with understanding that our heart is deceitfully wicked and that we're in need of a Savior. We all get this. Then what happens is when we receive the Messiah, think about our heart, deceitfully wicked. We get exposed to that, like, don't like it, Ugh, need help. We then receive Yeshua, and I'm going to put this in a picture. Now, this is not going to be necessarily realms and dimensions, but you'll understand what I mean as I describe this in a picture. Yeshua is like a shell around us. We go in Messiah. We are in him. We are under the shadow of his wings. So he's like a shell around our hearts. So now, instead of the Father viewing our hearts directly, which is sinfully, deceitfully wicked, and we feel that, we now have this shell around us, which is Yeshua, and the Father sees our hearts 
it, through the shell, which is Yeshua, which is righteousness. Now, in maturity, we start to receive more and more of the acceptance of the Father through the shell. Oh, really? Even though I know my heart's deceitfully wicked, you still view me through the shell, which is Yeshua? You mean I actually get his righteousness, the shell, even though my heart's deceitfully wicked? And that's a maturity process and a journey. Most mature believers finally get to the point where they accept the shell in entirety, even though their hearts are deceitfully wicked. Part of that problem that we go through in maturity is we know that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. So sometimes it's really hard to accept Yeshua as the shell in all aspects. All right. Does everybody get that? Everybody's walking with me. Yes. I am as righteous as Yeshua. I hope you can all say that with 100% confidence because he is the shell that you are in. You are in Yeshua. But there's more. And it goes to the heart. So now there's another aspect of this journey. This is why this is a Selah. The meditation of my heart is an acceptable sacrifice before you. Not the acceptable sacrifice of me receiving your righteousness for me. The acceptable sacrifice of my deceitfully wicked heart is a sacrifice before you. Getting this? This is really big. So there's another layer to this. We're in Yeshua. We accept his shell of righteousness. He's in us. He's in our hearts. He starts to transform the deceitfully wicked heart to one of righteousness. My goodness. Corey, yeah, imputed. No, 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 that's what I'm getting at. The imputed is the shell. He's actually transforming our hearts to righteousness. It's not a paint job. It's from within. It's not a declaration. It's a transformation. The more I walk in him, he walks in me. So now my heart is starting to take on the attributes of Messiah. Oh, my goodness. Because this is what we're getting prepared for. When our body of flesh is transformed and replaced by an incorruptible body, our hearts will have been made ready for that replacement, and our hearts will not have that baggage, but will have been transformed to the place where it is no longer deceitfully wicked. It's Messiah's heart back at him because he is in us. 
So I realized this. I'm like, oh my goodness, what he is doing, he's actually changing my heart to remove the deceitful wickedness that we all have. And I can see now glimmers and aspects of his heart in me. It's a whole new level of understanding that I am righteous. It's a maturity journey in our, as we're walking this out. Now, keep in mind, the beginning of all of this is the fear of Yahuwah. So I'm not saying this from a prideful place. The more I walk this out, the more I dive onto my, onto my knees in awe and splendor. But this is a bursting forth and another understanding of what he is doing in us to make us like him. Selah. All right, Isaiah. So this is what I want you guys to watch for that I'm real excited about these passages, starting in Isaiah 65, verse 8. The new wine, what does that mean? A new wineskin, because a new wineskin is required for new wine. And the bridegroom, three things. New wine, new wineskin, and the bridegroom. Isaiah 65. Starting in verse 8. And I'm going to try to get to verse 17 because that to me is like a beginning and ending point for this, this thought today. I'll read it to you once. Isaiah 65, verse 8 through 17. Thus says Yahuwah, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake that I might not destroy them all. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and my elect shall inherit it. And my servant shall dwell there. And Sharon shall be a fold of the flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for the herds to lie down. For my people that have sought me. But you are they that forsake Yahuwah and that forgot my holy mountain, going back to Jennifer's revelation, my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop and for furnishing the drink offering of that number. Therefore, I will number you to the sword. And you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear but did evil before my eyes and did choose that which in I delighted not. Therefore, thus says Yahuwah Adonai, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and shall howl for vexation of the spirit. And you shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, for Yahuwah Adonai shall slay you and call his servants by another name. 
that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the Elohim of truth. And he that swears in the earth shall swear by the Elohim of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. All right, let's back up. Back to verse 8. Psalm 29. I want to share this with you as a, as, as a help to understand verse 8. <clears throat> Psalm 29. <clears throat> Lots to say. Um, lots to say here psalm 29 psalm 29 love this psalm it's about uh, his voice and we know that it's by his word by his voice he is the word yeshua is the word all of this is him it all ties everything together but i want to point something out here in psalm 28 or 29 yeshua is life he is all in all His work is us. Our substance is his word. We are held together by his word. We were spoken into existence by his word. My essence, my spirit, my soul, my body is his word. Because his word created me and holds me together. But there's something else here that's really interesting in Psalm 29. Look at verse 3, for example. The voice of Yahuwah is upon the waters. Waters. The L of glory thunders. Yahuwah is upon great expansive waters. Verse 10. Yahuwah sits upon the flood. Yes. He sits king forever. Yahuwah will give strength unto his people. Yahuwah will bless his people with peace. So you can hear this theme about waters. Let me jump to another verse and kind of tie this together. Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of wa the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of Yahuwah and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it. Listen to what the street is. And on either side of the river, the street and the river are one and the same. There is actually a street of water proceeding out of Yahuwah, out of the Lamb. There's the tree of life, which bears 12 manners of fruit and yields her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this is what's happening in the spirit. Going back to Psalm 29, his voice is a channel. We talked about channels before in the spirit. 
that there's channels of fire. There is channels of water. There are channels of his voice in the spirit. And when we go back to Genesis, there is water and an expanse of firmament that separates the waters across dimensions. There's water layers in all of these dimensions and realms. There's a water layer. The ultimate water layer is coming right out of the throne, as we see in Revelation 22. So when his voice is spoken, there's actually a voice channel going through the spirit and a water channel going through the spirit (laughs) in different realms and dimensions. And we can actually tap into those things. In fact, when we get up, when when Yeshua is, is on the great day, the Feast of Tabernacles says, out of your bellies will flow living waters. There is a channel dimension going from one realm to another that's flowing out the waters. So this is what I mean by the waters. And how this ties back to, God, where are you going with this? New wine. In the grape, we're described as the grapes. We're the cluster of grapes. But where does life come into the grapes? It's within the water of the grape. The channels flowing bring his voice right from the throne of God into the grape. And what's the grape producing? The new wine. It's a flow of his water through that channel. So back to Isaiah 65. So keep that in mind now as we are about to go into grapes, wine, and clusters. Daughter Kayla will be real excited as she knows how to make wine. So Kayla, you can get all kinds of things stirred up in your head. Isaiah 65, verse 8. Thus says Yahuwah, as the new wine is found in the cluster. And one says, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake that I destroy them, not all. So if Yahuwah is in all, Yeshua is in all, part of what he is in is he's, he has a, a stream, a channel of living water coming into the grape, into us. He has a stream or a flow of his voice holding all things together into the grape. That's where the life is in the new cluster. So there is a new thing that he is doing in us. There's a new thing that he is doing in the body. And literally, there is a new thing. You'll see this in the earth as the wine skin. Because if we are new wine, the new wine has to be held in new wine skins. So keep this in mind as we start to Dive into this. Matthew chapter 9. I'm trying to weave a whole bunch of things together to try to paint a picture. So hang in there. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. Going back to John the Baptist, the Pharisees are asking Yeshua, why does John's disciples fast and yours do not? Matthew 9, verse 15. And Yeshua said to them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, then they shall fast. So we get a tithe of children, childlike faith, who love the bridegroom, getting ready for when the marriage is taking place. And if we go back to Isaiah 65, 8, we're seeing that this cluster, and you're going to see wine, water. We're going to get into John chapter 2, which is the first miracle that Yeshua does, which is about a marriage, which turns water into wine. All of this ties together. So that the destroy it not for a blessing is in it, it's going to be difficult in these last days. And that's why I keep telling you guys over and over again, the body's going to look different. The bride's going to look different than what we think. It's going to be difficult to pick out those new grapes out of the cluster because it looks like it's not good. The wheat, when it's small, looks like it's tear. It doesn't look like it's good. It's going to be difficult, so we have to be patient. We got to be careful that we do not reject the new wine that's being brought forth. I think we are in the generation of the new wine. Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Psalm 24 starts off in verse 1, talking about the earth. So it's tying the earth. Then in verses 2 and 3 and 4, it's talking about the priesthood that is crying up from the earth into the heavens. So we're tying heavens to earth through the priesthood. And here in verse 6, Psalm 24, verse 6, this is the generation of them that seek him, that seek your face, O Jacob, Selah, means meditate on the generation. That word generation is the Hebrew uh, 755 or seven, no 1755, which is door. It is a revolution of time. It's like an appointment of time, an age from everlasting. So we have people from everlasting, human spirits from everlasting that have taken on an assignment to come into this revolution of time that they are the ones that will seek his face. They are the new wine. They're the ones in the last days. They're the ones that don't look like they should be part of religion. They're the ones that don't look like they should be part of the body, but they are about to transform and become the essence of the new wine of the body. For such a time as this, and they'll be seeking his face. So keep that in mind. Back to Isaiah 65. Cluster. I want to talk a little bit about this word cluster, Isaiah 65, 8. So cluster of grapes. It is uh, the Strong's Hebrew 811. It's eshkol, eshkol. First mention of the word cluster. Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40, cluster. We're building several building blocks. You're like seeing me scatter a whole bunch of brick all over the place. 
and I'm starting to lay out this design of new wine, new wine skin, and bridegroom, and it will come together. We'll go on the journey today together. Genesis chapter 40, first mention of the word cluster, eshkol. This is Joseph interpreting two dreams, the baker and the cupbearer of Pharaoh, and they're in prison. Genesis 40, verse 10, and this is the cupbearer, and he's describing, Joseph is describing the beans. Joseph, keep in mind Joseph, and in the vine, there were three branches, and it was though it budded and her blossoms shot forth, and the clusters, wine clusters, therefore brought forth ripe grapes. So what, which what's happening is Isaiah is using the word cluster of new wine. He's referring it back to Joseph's interpretation of the cupbearer's dream. So we got a tie to Joseph. Now, what's the tie from Joseph to the cupbearer? The cupbearer is the new wine that after three days, he'll be resurrected. The new wine is the blood of the great representing the covenant. So you have Joseph tied to resurrection, tied to covenant, as back to Isaiah 65, 8, the new wine in the cluster. See how all of this kind of comes together? Now, the word eshkol is also used, Numbers 13. I think we need to see this as well. All of this is really tying together. That's what I'm saying. This is layer upon layer upon layer about to produce this incredible picture for us. Numbers chapter 13. Verse 23. The spies get sent into the land. I'm going to back up. Numbers 13. Um, two people in particular I want to point out. Verse 6. Numbers 13, verse 6. And of the tribe of Judah, Caleb. So Caleb is from Judah. Uh, another one that I want to pick out. Verse 8, Numbers 13, 8. And of the tribe of Ephraim, Oshea, or Joshua, or Yeshua. So Joshua and Yeshua is the same name. So we have Ephraim, which is the one that was given the name Israel represented by Joshua, we call Joshua. And then we have Caleb that is representing Judah. You got the two major tribes, Caleb, Joshua. So now let's jump ahead to Numbers 13, verse 23. They get sent out into the land and they come unto the brook of Eshcol and cut down from there a branch with one cluster of grapes. They buried in between two of their staff and brought up the pomegranates and figs. So that term eshkol is cluster. It's literally cluster. And that's in reference to the inherited land that they were supposed to go into. All right, so there's a tie there. And part of the tie is when they go into the land, Moses says something really interesting to them. He says to them, um, check out if the cities are walled or fenced. Check out if the people are great or small. Check out if there is wood or not. 
means are they righteous or are they not righteous? If they are unrighteous, then we can take them because God will judge them and we can take the land. That was his call unto the spies. So they come back with a cluster of grapes and they say, yes, the Canaanites are in there. They're unrighteous. The land can be ours because we can judge them. That's the same thing that's going on with us right now. We are judging the unrighteous world, and therefore we can take the land. And it's filled with new wine. It's filled with clusters of grapes. Jump ahead, Numbers 13, verse 30. So after the people are all concerned, because 10 of the spies give bad reports, but Joshua and Caleb, Judah and Ephraim, or Israel, stand firm, Caleb says this, Numbers 13, verse 30, and Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it. That word possess is Yah-Rosh. The first time it's mentioned, it goes back to Abraham that he is going to inherit Canaan or the land. Possess is the same word as inherit. So what's happening is Caleb is giving a witness that the land belongs to Israel, which is represented by Joshua or Yeshua. The new grapes, Eshkol, of the land belong to Yeshua, Joshua. Joshua then becomes the leader going into the land to get the new grapes. So there's a declaration, a witness that it's Joseph, Joshua, Ephraim's inheritance, Yeshua's inheritance of what? New grapes. New wine. Numbers 13.32. This is all tying back to Joseph and inheritance in the land. Numbers 13.32. And they brought up an evil report. These are the ten spies of the land which they had searched the children. That term, evil report, guess what? It's the same word. Genesis 37. Ay, ay, ay. Same word. Genesis 37, verse 2. Now, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph, because he's the most important one in Jacob being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bela and with the sons of Zephah, those are all of his brothers, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. So this is what's happening. The spies are bringing an evil report to Joseph's inheritance, not Caleb. The spies represent the brothers of Joseph. So they're Jacob, an evil report. Just like the brothers had an evil report of Joseph before he was thrown into the pit. This is what's taking place today. 
Jacob, who is representing humanity, struggling in the decision of being free or in bondage, is giving a bad report to those of us who are Joseph inheriting the land. And we're saying, God said, possess it. And the rest of humanity is giving us an evil report. They're in agreement with the Amalekites. They're in agreement with the Amorites. They're too big for us. We can't take it. We can't take the land. The enemy owns the earth. This is why I started off in saying the spirit of Elijah must continue to press in to break through Zion onto the earth. We must possess the land. Do you believe God or do you not? Are you Joseph in inheriting the land or are you not? The new grapes are ours. He said it. Do you believe it? Are you going to take action? Or are you going to listen to the bad report of your brothers and sisters who are Jacob, the uncircumcised of heart? Isaiah 65. All of this is, is layers. And he's saying that the time is now. This is the generation that seeks his face, that will birth Zion onto the earth, that will take the land. The new grapes are theirs. The new wine is theirs. Six, Isaiah 65, verse 9. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob. This is us. This is what I'm talking about. And out of Judah, an inheritor for a mountain. This goes back to Caleb and Joshua, the two witnesses going into the land. I will bring this forth as an inheritor of my mountains, my governments, and my elect shall inherit it. Exactly what we just went through. And my servants shall dwell there, shall occupy. So this seed that's coming from Jacob, it's the birthright seed. It's the firstborn seed. And that's why Isaiah spent so much time in building up this concept of the firstborn. Because it is a seed that's going to inherit the land. The seed is Israel out of Jacob. That's why the Bible is using always the terms Jacob and Israel. Jacob is uncircumcised. It is humanity that has the potential to be Israel. Israel is the circumcised. It is the spirit man. So Jacob's wrestling with the angel. Probably Yeshua. He is Jacob. And then he gets to the point, even though he has the promises given to him by his father, Isaac, even though the promises were given to him by the Holy Spirit when he lays his head upon the rock, it's not until he fully receives it that he's transformed and changed into Israel. So Jacob is all here, but there's a seed that is brought forth out of Jacob that is Israel that really does understand the inheritance. Not everybody is the same. And we're going to struggle to watch. It's going to be difficult to watch people who just got free. We just went through that choice in the first seven verses of Isaiah 65. Now we're going to watch and struggle people who just got free, deny the one that made them free. It's going to be like, no, no, don't deny. Now. Don't stop now because we haven't inherited the land. Wait until we go and inherit the land. It's going to be amazing but people will stop. 
We're in the last days. This is a full circle back to all these promises. Verse 10. And Sharon shall be a fold of the flocks, the valley of Achor, a place for the herds to lie down, for my people that have sought me. This is also a beautiful tie to go back. So why did he throw up uh, Sharon and Achor? <clears throat> so he's talking about the sheepfold. And we think about who was the king that was the shepherd. Of course, it was David. So I want you to keep this in mind, David. David is the shepherd. Song of Solomon gives us some insight in how these things are tied together. I think I'm going to upend some religious doctrine here in the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Song of Solomon 2, verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Okay, who's speaking there? Put it in the chat. Who's, who's speaking in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4? I'll read it again. I'm going to back up, actually, put it in context. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, how far back? Verse 13. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 13. And then I'm going to read through Song of Solomon 2, verse 4, uh, verse four, all the way through. Listen to who's speaking. Song of Solomon 1, 13. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night between my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of of camphor in the vineyards of Engedi. Back to mine. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Behold, you are fair, my beloved. Yes, pleasant also. Our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are fir. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. As the lily amongst thorns, so is my love amongst the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved amongst the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Who's speaking? Now, the reason I'm asking you this is because this is what's going to crack in some of the religion thinking that we've been trained with. 
I am the rose of Sharon. I am the lily of valleys. Bride speaking. The bride. We've always been taught that it's Yeshua saying that I am the rose of Sharon and I am the lily of the valleys. But this whole component is the bride speaking. The bride is declaring unto Yeshua, the bridegroom, I am your rose. I am your lily. See, the bridegroom does not respond until Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 8. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a rower, young heart. Uh, young heart. Behold, he stands behind one wall. He looks forth, showing himself through the window. My beloved spoke and said. Oh, my goodness. Our. We are the core of his garden. We are the singular rose in his eyes. We are the lily of the entire valley before him. The bride has to declare this from the depths of her heart in belief. That's why Caleb and Joshua could say, he said it, it's our land. I got this because they understood that they were the rose before his eyes. This is what I mean by do you accept Nagwaka maturity is Yeshua being the rose as your shell and you're accepting Yeshua's righteousness or are you going to a place where Yeshua is actually in your heart? He's transforming your heart. and Now you are the rose of Sharon. So Isaiah 65 is getting at this. It's for those people that understand the new cluster of grapes. So, and Sharon shall be a fold of the flocks. The bride is a fold for the sheep coming in. The bride is Zion. Zion's coming down. The sheep come into Zion in the sheepfold because Zion is the rose of Sharon. Keep going. Let that sink in. Selah. To the Valley of Achor. Joshua chapter 7. I'm the rose of Sharon, but yet I know. I bow before his feet, and I am moved with the fear of Yah every day. Joshua chapter 7. Verse 24. Remember, Joshua 
is the same as Yeshua. Same name. So Joshua is a type of Yeshua here. Joshua 7, verse 24. And Yeshua, proper pronunciation, and all Israel with him took Achan. Now, Achan is the one that was hiding false idols in his tent. Achan, the son of Zerah, the son of the seed, meaning he is Jacob. He is of the seed of Jacob, but he is not circumcised of heart to be Israel. Oh, this is so many layers. It's all pointing back to this. It's the same story over and over again. And the silver means he had the redemption money at his hand, but he didn't receive the redemption of Yeshua. So silver representing the redemption. And the garment, the garment is the priest. He was, he had a garment that was given to him, but he was he didn't understand how to be a priest either. And the wedge of gold, which means he had access to the inheritance of heaven and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Yeshua said, what have you done to trouble us? Yahuwah shall trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Now, this sounds terrible, but this is the picture of this. All of the false idols that Jacob has, that unredeemed Israel has, that humanity has, gets thrown into the valley of Achor and burned up. Now, all of Jacob has the opportunity to have the redemptive silver, to have the priesthood garment, and to have the gold access to heaven. And in order to get into the place of Israel to get there, you have to burn up all the idols. And Yeshua is right there. That's the Valley of Achor. Hosea chapter 2. So many pictures in this. Hosea chapter 2. I'll wait till we get to the new wineskin. It's going to be awesome. Hosea chapter 2. Verse 14. Because this is also kind of the full picture. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Who? The bride. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to pull her out of Egypt and bring her into the wilderness. Just like the second exodus, just like the first exodus, he brings, he brings Jacob out of the wilderness to try to speak to her tenderly about who she is, that she is the Rose of Sharon. I will give her the vineyards, up oh, back to the grapes, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth. And as of the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day that you shall call me Ishi or husband. And you shall no, call, no longer call me Baal or master. For I will take away the names of Balaam, all the false idols, out of her mouth and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day, I will make a covenant for them 
with the beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven. So he's going to make a covenant with the earth and with the heaven and the creepy things on the ground. And I will break the bow of the sword of the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. He's talking about the millennial kingdom. And I will betroth you. The bride is now ready unto me forever. Yes, I will betroth you unto me in righteousness, heart condition, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. And I will even betroth you unto me in faithfulness. I'm going to declare you faithful. And you shall know, 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 know with intimacy, Yahuwah. Such, such good language. I'm going to keep going. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, says Yahuwah, I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth. Connection, heaven and earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil. It's going to hear the body, the soul, and the spirits. And they shall hear Jezreel, and I will sow her unto me in the earth. He's going to sow an unredeemed Zion that we were supposed to birth into the earth so that she becomes Zion. And I will have mercy upon her that has obtained mercy, and I will say to them, that were not my people, you are my people. Jacob, you're not my people, but now you are my people, Israel, and they shall say, you are my God. This is at the Valley of Achor. So when Isaiah 65 is saying that Sharon shall be like a fold unto the flocks, and the Valley of Achor a place for the herds to lie down, this is the place of redemption where all the idols get burned up, and a new birth takes place. Beautiful, amazing. 65-11. Layers, 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 layers of this story. But you are those, now, now there's, this, there's this contrast. So these are the people that are brought to the Valley of Acor, but they do not burn their idols. And then there's other people like us, we've burned our idols in Acor. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on them. I want to spend more time on us today. So you are those that forsake. Who are they? They're forsaking their inheritance. They're forsaking the government of Zion. They're forgetting Zion. Yep. This is the context now in Revelation. This is why people in Revelation, that study Revelation and, and, and have not had Revelation on what all this is going on with Israel, they miss it. That the judgment starts in the house of Yah. It starts with Jacob. He's, he's imposing judgment upon Jacob to try to draw out a few more into Israel. It's easy to judge the enemy. He's trying to judge his own people to try to draw them out some more. The last remaining sheep to get him out. He even said, I am not going to destroy the whole cluster. Because I want to get that last grape out that's possible. That's why he tells the angels, do not go and just harvest. Not yet. Because the wheat looks like the tares. I don't want you to destroy any of the wheat. So he's trying to pull them out. Part of what's happening is Romans 11. Go to Romans 11. 
Romans 11, verse 25. Paul gets this. For I wish not, brothers and sisters, that you be not ignorant of the mystery. The mystery is what we're talking about today. Lest you would be wise in your own conceit, thinking you have this figured out in terms of the last days. That blindness in part has happened to Israel. He's talking about Jacob, really. Blindness has been given to Jacob until the fullness of the nations has come. And so all of Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is what Paul is describing. He's saying Jacob is blind. He's Yahweh is trying to draw as many as he can out of Jacob into Israel. And he's doing it until all of the nations and the fullness of Jacob has been withdrawn from the nations. And he's doing it by the Redeemer because it's for Zion's sake. It's Zion's kids that are lost within the nations. So he's trying to draw them out. Ties back to Joseph, of course. So all of this is kind of tying together. Back to Isaiah 65. I'm going to skip through verses 12 through 15. There's things that could be said there, but I'm going to just share, share with you the contrast on where we're I'm going to emphasize where we're at because I really want to spend time on 16 and 17 to finish up. Verse 13, 65, verse 13. Therefore, it says, Yahuwah Adonai. And I know some people every once in a while, especially that are, are new with us, they what kind of translation are you reading from? Um, this, is the, this is the King James. I read it as if it's the new King James. So I'm translating the these and the thous and the shalls, all that stuff on the fly. And then because my, my Bible has the, the Strong's uh, numbers in here, where I see that it says, Lord God. And that strong 136, that's Adonai. So on the fly, I am reading, therefore, thus says Yahuwah Adonai, behold my servants. So I just wanted to share that with you guys. Because I'm not making things up. <laughs> behold my servants. So this, think about us. My servants shall eat. Behold, my servant shall drink. Behold, my servant shall rejoice. Notice I'm just focusing on us. But think about the language. My servant shall eat. My servant shall drink. My servant shall rejoice. Verse 14, my servant shall sing for joy of heart. What does that sound like? It sounds like a. A marriage supper. That's, that's what it sounds like. And he's kind of hinting at this all along. 
that that that's where the place that we're coming from. So marriage supper. I want to share this a little bit. Verse 15, and you shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, for Yahuwah Adonai shall slay you and call his servants by a new name. What were Yeshua's disciples called? It's hinted at this in the book of Acts. It says it, that they were called the followers of the way. They didn't know what to call them. And at some point in time, they said, um, they're Christians. That, that term came up. They're Christians. What are we called today? Well, we're called Christians by the world. Are we called sons of Jacob? No. Um, what are we going to be called in the last days? Because he's going to give us a new name. See, part of what we are taking on with the name is an expression of the character traits. And if I declare, and we just went, went through this in Song of Solomon, if I am the Rose of Sharon, that's a new character trait that now I am taking on. So we need to be thinking about how to break out of the box of, oh, you're a Christian. Because even though the term Christian is probably a good thing, you are an anointed, because think about Christ means anointed. That's good. But that's not the definition and attributes that have been given to us. And it's not the fullness of who we are. So he's going to call us by a new name. And I want to share with you guys um, a phrase that I think is real important for us to, to receive. Speaking of John the Baptist, John chapter 3. Turn to John chapter 3. We're a lot of things, and I, I see that in the text. All these things are good. I want to give you another one to consider and, and to receive as who you are. John chapter 3. I shared this, I think, in a study or two ago. But I, I want to go a little deeper into this. John chapter 3, verse 29. This is John the Baptist speaking. Remember, new wine, new wineskin. We haven't gotten to the new wineskin yet in the bridegroom. So you can see we're... We've tapped on new wine a little bit. We've tapped on bridegroom a little bit. We're going to start tying things together here at the end. John chapter 3, verse 29. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom. Wait a minute. I thought, as a believer, we wanted to be the bride. Now John the Baptist is saying, no, no, he's the friend of the bridegroom which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. There's another layer of maturity that John is getting at. 
Turn to Psalm 45, the bridal psalm. We're going to break this piece up and view this in a different way too today, just like we viewed the Song of Solomon differently today. Psalm 45. I want you guys to think as I'm reading through this. Psalm 45 as the perspective of the friend of the bridegroom. Now, the friend of the bridegroom is excited for the bridegroom. The bride is excited for herself and is excited for the marriage. But the friend of the bridegroom, he's looking at the bridegroom and seeing his joy. It's, it's a different point of view of the wedding. See, John the Baptist is so confident in who he is as the bride that he can now view in another dimension the bridegroom's perspective of the wedding. See, we, we've been training up in our immaturity, the perspective of being the bride in the wedding. John the Baptist in maturity is now going to view the bridegroom in the wedding. Psalm 45. My heart is bubbling, boiling in a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. This is the scribe of the bridegroom. This is the friend of the bridegroom. That's the perspective of this psalm. You are fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into your lips. Therefore, Elohim has blessed you forever. Gird up your sword in your thigh, O you mighty, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty rides uh, prosperously because of the truth and meekness and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you of the terrible, tremendous things. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies whereby the people fall. Your throne, O Elohim, O O bridegroom, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a right scepter. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, uh, Elohim, your Elohim, speaking of the bridegroom to the father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. All your garments smell of myrrh and aloes, tasha, and out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made you glad. The king's daughters, now he's looking upon the the, the bridesmaids. All the king's daughters were among honorable women. And upon your right hand to stand the queen, the bride in gold. Hearken, O daughter. He's now the, the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom is now speaking to the daughter, the queen, the bride. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear, forget also your own people. Means don't even 
think about it. All you're supposed to do is think about the bridegroom. So shall the king greatly desire your beauty. So the friend of the bridegroom is saying to the queen, you are the rose of Sharon. Forget what everybody else has told you. This is how I know my friend, the king, Yeshua, looks upon you. For he is Adam and worship you him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with the gift. Means the nations that are outside, that are not part of the bride, they're going to come and give you gifts. Even the rich amongst the nations shall entreat your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is wrought of gold because she's been now moved into heaven. She has been brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions, the bridesmaids that follow her shall be brought unto you. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. They're going into the father's house. Instead of your fathers shall be your children whom you make princes unto the earth. So your offspring will rule the earth in the millennial kingdom. This is what's happening. I will make your name remembered unto all the generations. Therefore shall the people praise you forever and ever. He's speaking to the bride. So this is the perspective of the friend of the bridegroom. I am a friend of the bridegroom. This is my point of view in Psalm 45. The spirit of Elijah has been activated in me, like John the Baptist. I see this from the position of the friend with the bridegroom. I'm so confident in my position in the bride that my perspective is now different. I rejoice in seeing Yeshua rejoice for you. Back to Isaiah 65. Now we're going to finish it with the new wine skin. Because this is all part of the wedding. Isaiah 65. Verse 16. That he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the Elohim of truth. So if you're going to bless, be blessed, it's because you are blessing Elohim through you. And actually, you can be in such a place of confidence that he has blessed you that you can say, I am going to bless myself in the earth because Elohim is working through me. I am confident that I am the Sharon, the Rose of Sharon. And he swears into the earth shall swear by the Elohim of truth because the former troubles are forgotten. See, not only are, his, are our sins as far from him as the east is from the west, now they become as far to us as the east is from the west. We are so receiving the righteousness from now within that our sin is as far as the east is from the west, not only in his eyes, but in our own eyes. Woo-wee. 
And because they are hid from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Okay. New heavens and new earth. We got to talk about this a little bit. When is this going to happen? Does this happen at the beginning of the millennial? Does it happen at the end of the millennial? If it happens at the end of the millennial, does the earth and the heaven transform or change in the millennial kingdom? I don't know. And it says that the former at that time shall not even be remembered. So what point is the earth not remembered? What point is the, are that current heavens not remembered? Now, Isaiah says this and says, and, and when I create the new heavens and the new earth, the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. But then he goes on the rest of 65 and 66 describing the millennial kingdom. That's confusing. <laughs> because once we get to a new heaven and a new earth, we won't even remember the former. So what exactly is happening here? Let's go through the references of the new heaven and earth. There's only a handful. There's only four. Four times they're talking about the new heaven and earth. We just read one. Isaiah 66 now. Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says Yahuwah, so shall your seed and your name remain. So when he, so this kind of reference, what he's getting at, because our seed and our name is going to remain forever, he said. So whenever we get to that place of living in that timeline with the new heavens and new earth, which already is, by the way, the new heavens and the new earth, when that happens, it's forever. It's forever. There's not going to be any more changing of the new heavens and the new earth. It's forever. Okay, so that's Isaiah 66, 22. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11. After the millennial kingdom. So we already went through the whole book of Revelation. We already went through the thousand year reign. Revelation 20 verse 11. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was no place found for them. So now we got the earth and the heaven are gone after the millennial kingdom. Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were past. 
It just happened, the verses before. And there was no more C. All right, so we have this transition period of time. So in Isaiah 66, 22, it's referring to after Yeshua's return and saying that it's going to be forever. It's just a reference of being forever, just like your seed is going to be forever, your name's going to be forever. Then in Revelation 20, verse 11, and 21, verse 1, it's talking about after the millennial kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, and the old has passed away. So now here comes a, the most difficult passage, in my opinion, is Second Peter. It's the only other passage that talks about this. So Second Peter... Chapter 3. So with those verses and those other verses in mind, let's try to understand Second Peter, chapter 3. And I'm going to type in, let's see it in the chat, a uh, reference to those verses. So I'm going to type those in really fast. So Isaiah uh, 65, verse 17. 66, verse 22, Revelation 20, verse 11, and 21, verse 1, and then the last one is Second Peter that we're about to get into, verse 3, and I'm going to put in the whole 17 to 4. So all this is going in the chat. Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment the white throne judgment which we just read and perdition of ungodly men so that's when that happens but beloved be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with Yahweh as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day Yahweh is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of Yahweh will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works therein shall be burned up. Seeing then these things, so when that happens, Seeing that these things, keep that in mind, that uh, these things shall be dissolved when they're completely gone away, which happens now we know after the millennial kingdom. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conversation and godliness like right now? Looking forward and hastening to the coming of the day of Yahuwah, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, you look for such things, so this is future, shall be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So Peter is describing this, but in our timeline, as a future event. And he even talks about the future event that we just defined in Isaiah and Revelation. All right, so keep that in mind. The new heavens and the new earth seems to be pretty clear that it's going to be after the millennial kingdom. And when we go back to Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65, 
and we stop in verse 17. We haven't gotten to this yet, but the rest of Isaiah 65, the rest of Isaiah 66 is talking about the millennial kingdom. So meaning that we're still supposed to have knowledge of this period of time because we're not going to have knowledge of it once we get into the new heavens and earth. And yet Isaiah continues to talk about it. So I wanted to share that in terms of the timing. Now let's talk about the wineskin because this is going to be cool. This is how we're going to finish up. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We mentioned this one verse, but we didn't read the rest of the verses. Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verse 15. Tying back to John the Baptist. And Yeshua said to them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn? as long as the bridegroom is with them. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. Let's keep reading. No man puts a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up takes from the garment and is torn and it's made worse. Verse 17, neither, and where did we start with Isaiah 65, verse 8? The new wine in the clusters of grapes. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles. Else the bottles break. And the wine runs out. And the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Now, we could stop there, but I want you to see what happens right away because it's all connected. Verse 18, while he spoke, meaning this is all happening together. Unfortunately, the translators and the publishers of my Bible put a heading in there saying Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. So what my inclination is, is to then stop with verse 17 and not go on to 18. But that's not how the scripture is supposed to be. How do I know that? Because verse 18 says, while he spoke these things. So he says, while he spoke these things, it's tied together. What happens? Behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, a king, saying, my daughter is now dead. And what did we read in Psalm 45? The king's daughter is going to be the queen, the bride. My daughter is dead. Can you come and lay your hand upon her and she shall live? This is what's going on here. The new wine is tied to the raising from the dead, the resurrection, the birthing of life of the bride. 
new wine must go into a new wine skin. We, in our bodies, we have old bodies, (laughs) some older than others. The old bodies are tied to the flesh, tied to sin. In order for the new heart, the new wine, to fully come forth, we need new wine skins, resurrected bodies. It gets better. Not only do we get resurrected bodies, and that's tied, the new wine being in new wine skins. See, that's why we can't fully come forth in our bodies in this age is because the the wine skins can't hold it. It would burst. My flesh would burst if my spirit fully came forth. I need a new wine skin for my new wine to live in. But I'm being prepared to live in the new wine skin. There's another layer to this, this, though. All of creation is groaning, waiting for this to happen. The manifestation of the sons of God. In their new wineskins. Because all of creation will be transformed into a new wineskin. Oh, my goodness. Our bodies will be new wineskins. The earth will be a new wineskin. The earth cannot handle us when we fully come forward until it gets changed. See, during the millennial kingdom, that's why when Isaiah is going to about to describe all the things of the earth, the lamb laying down with the wolf, the The leaves of Yeshua's tree of life going forth from the rivers of water that are constantly providing healing unto the land. It's a new wineskin. The whole thing is a new wineskin for us being the new wine. John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I'm going a little long, and you can see why I'm going a little long, because it's layer, 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 layer. John chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. This is so prophetic. John, the one whom Jesus loved, because he realized he was the Rose of Sharon, the one who Jesus most loved. That's what he felt for himself, because he, he, he just so got it. John chapter 2, verse 1. So much prophetic. So I'll stop and say a few things, um, but we'll keep rolling through this. And the third day, there was a marriage. Okay, third day means the resurrection. We just tied <laughs> resurrection back to the new wine and the new wineskins and the friend of the bridegroom. So we got the friend of the bridegroom, meaning the wedding is also going to be on the third day, which is the resurrection, which we get the new wineskins for. Hey, right, enough of that was the marriage of Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Yeshua was there. 
And both Yeshua was called and his disciples to the marriage. The bridegroom, the, the, the bride party was there. So all of this is happening. And when they wanted wine, they wanted the body to be full. Romans chapter, that's why I went to Romans chapter 11. And the fullness of the nations, the fullness of the body, the fullness of the wine, the bridegroom and the, the friends of the bride, his disciples, wanted the bride to be full, wine. They said, we have no wine. Yeshua says to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour is not yet come. Now we know that one of his hours was on the cross and to fulfill all things. Another one of his hours, his appointments, is the wedding feast. His mother said to his servants, whatever he says, you do. And they were set there six water pots of stone. And after the manner of purifying of the Jews containing two or three firstkins apiece, it's the size. Yeshua said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them to the brim. Okay, now listen to this. Six, you, somebody just said it, 6,000 years, six pots, exactly. 6,000 years from creation, you got a filling of water, but not wine yet. The new wine happens at the end. That's when the marriage happens. After we get six full millennial of water, now we get the wine for the wedding feast. And it's on the third day, by the way. The third day references the resurrection, but Hosea talks about, and we will be raised on the third day, meaning that after Yeshua died and was resurrected 2,000 years ago on the third day, meaning the beginning of the third millennial after his resurrection, we will be raised up. So you got the 6,000 and the 3,000 all, all converging unto the wedding feast. Keeps going. And Yeshua said, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim, the last sheep, the last grape. The, where's the life of the grape? The water, the life of Yeshua going into the grape, because that's what creates the wine. So fill the water pots totally to the brim, the absolute last piece, because I want the very last grape filled with water so that it can produce wine. And he said to them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bore it. And when the ruler of the feast, who is Yahuwah the father, had tasted the water that was made to wine and knew not where it came from, the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom. He calls the son and says to him, every man at the beginning to set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But you have kept the good wine until now. The best time is at the end. The greater works will be done at the end. 
The latter rain is at the end. The new wine is turned from water at the end. Yeshua's fullness of the bride is at the end. And the Father and the Son rejoice because the best wine is at the end when the fullness of all the sheep are there. This is also the perspective of the disciples who are the friends of the bridegroom. They rejoice that the bridegroom has the most wine possible. And it was his very first miracle. His very first miracle. Psalm 89, last scripture. Psalm 89, last scripture. This to me is also like Psalm 45. It's also like John the Baptist, friend of the bridegroom. Psalm 89 is like this. I will sing of the mercies of Yahuwah forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to the end of generations, all the generations, the fullness of the wine. The fullness of those jars. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness shall you establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David, my servant. Your seed will I establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. And the heavens shall praise your wonders, O Yahuwah, your faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared unto Yahuwah? Who is among the sons of El that can be likened unto Yahuwah? He is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be in the reverence of all of them that are round about him. O Elohim Sabaoth. Who is strong, Yahuwah, like you, or your faithfulness around about you? It goes on and on and on and on like this. This is the perspective of Psalm 89. It is describing the wedding feast and the bridegroom. The perspective, though, coming as the friend of the bridegroom. And he, mess- he mentions these core essence attributes which I I totally relate to. There's revelation to this. There's mercy to this. It's from his mouth. The ready pen of the writer. There is building taking place. He's establishing a building. He's establishing Zion. He's establishing it with the pillars, which we are. He's talking about the father. And the father is the one that was ruling over the marriage. And then the wine is filled for the bridegroom. This is what we are living in right now. So my message to you guys, kind of summing it up, we got new wine. We got to rejoice for the new wineskin is coming. (laughs) The bridegroom and the spirit of Elijah. Do not be weary at well-doing. 
We are on the verge of Zion bursting forth into the earth. And it really is a convergence coming into the gate. And it feels tight. You can feel the compression. But I'm real excited because it is the wedding feast time. And the bridegroom is rejoicing over the bride being made ready. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness and your mercy and your grace and your power and your love. And that what you say does come forth. We receive everything that you've said about us. And we cut off everything that has been said about us from the world. We even reject the things that the deceitfulness of our hearts have said about us. And we receive the things that you say about us in our hearts. You tell us that we have dove's eyes for you. You tell us that our hearts are acceptable sacrifices before you. Father, may we establish in the earth a home for Zion to be birthed. May we establish in the earth a temple that is worthy of your presence. And we will wait patiently until you have completed the work in us that you are performing. And just like you spoke to Joshua saying, be strong and courageous, I speak unto the spirit of Elijah and everyone, be strong and courageous. Do not go hide in the cave. Do not doubt. But may the Holy Spirit move you through all the way to the end of the race. That when you cross that finish line, you will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, I thank you for everyone here. Bless them and honor them. May you speak to them gently, kindly, powerfully. May the channels of your voice go forth into the realms and dimensions around them. May the channels of the waters streaming from the throne and of the Lamb go forward and around them and through them. And we declare you are establishing Zion, seizing through the gates of the earth in our time and our generation now in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. You've just listened to Todd Talks here at Bride Ministries International. Be sure to visit our website at bridemovement.com. You can support us by leaving a donation. You can also check out our other offerings, such as our church. You can check out our institute. We offer prayer resources and, of course, so much more.